Hey everyone, my name is Tanisha and I'll be reading for us today. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 26. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akodema, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these men must become a witness with us of his resurrection." So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Bersabus, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. Oh, good morning, everyone. 
Please um, keep your Bibles open or whatever you've got your Bible on to Acts uh, chapter 1. And of course you can go to the online hub for me there, you there, um, uh, to see the outline for today's talk. Um, though I'll reveal some of it as I go. One phenomenon that I suppose you might say has uh, taken the media world by storm, particularly in the last 30 years or so, is the rise of the domination of the market by the sequel. So that includes things like um, movies, of course, uh, such as uh, Star Wars and its great many movies, or Rocky, if you're a Rocky fan, or Home Alone, maybe you're a Home Alone fan. But it also includes video games, not of which I'm much of a connoisseur of that, but many people are of things like Age of the Empires, which seems to have so many editions I can't keep up with them um, in that way. And then there's books or novels. And uh, in recent times, of course, the most popular would have to be the Harry Potter series there. But did you know, when it comes to uh, books and the written word, the phenomenon of the sequel uh, goes back a very long way, even to the Bible. And the book we begin today uh, is one of those, The Acts of the Apostles. The author, you see, um, the Apostle Paul's companion, Luke, alerts us to the nature of the book as a sequel right from the very beginning in the first couple of verses. In verses 1 and 2, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, as we've just seen, up, 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 after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Three things, you see, alert us immediately to Acts as uh, the nature of Acts as a sequel. Luke refers, first of all, to his former book, which is the Gospel, of course, of Luke. This book is written to the same person as his former book, namely to Theophilus. If you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and refer to his uh, intention to write about the things that have been handed down about Jesus... In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of of Luke, we read this. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So that's the second thing that tells us it's a sequel. Same guy. Only time he's mentioned in the Bible is in Luke's writings. And then the third thing is Luke talks about his former work in terms of all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication, of course, is that Luke now writes in this book, um, it should be thought of uh, in terms of Jesus' continuing work. If he began, all that Jesus began there, well, the implication is that he's going to write about Jesus' continuing work. And as these first chapters will show, I think Acts should be understood as the outworking, really, of Jesus' words 
to the Apostle Peter in Matthew 16. In that chapter, we've recorded, we have recorded for us Peter's confession of Christ to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verse 18, Jesus responds uh, with these words. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So although the book that we look at today, and we'll look at for a few weeks and just four weeks here, but then we'll have another clump later on, is called the Acts of the Apostles. And of course that is what what it records, though it's mainly the Acts of Peter and Paul. Luke's main intention seems to be to give an account of how Jesus will bring about the formation of his people. Hence the title we've given um, this series, Jesus Builds His Church. And the first chapter of Acts, this first chapter, sets up really how Jesus is going to compensate because we've already seen from the kids' talk, up, 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 Jesus in heaven. He's no longer on earth. He's seated on his heavenly throne as ruler of the world. And so I think Acts chapter 1 ought to be seen as, if you like, um, his plan, his outline of how he is going to continue his work this time in uh, building his uh, church. And what we see is it begins with the fulfilment of a promise, then proceeds with the giving of a commission, and finally a completion of the apostolic circle. So first of all, we have a promise. Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Now if you go back to the end of Luke's Gospel after his resurrection, um, Jesus appeared to his disciples and he told them that he was going to send them what his father had promised. But at that stage he didn't actually spell out what it was. Now in his sequel, Luke specifies the promise he referred to was the gift of the Holy Spirit. He referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now like water, the word baptism simply refers to a pouring out. That's what the word actually means. So whereas John had poured out water on people as a symbol of repentance and forgiveness, Jesus will pour out the Holy Spirit on his followers. That this baptism is not something that's uh, just simply for the apostles, a special thing for them, but for all God's people is clearly indicated by two things. Firstly, the comparison with John the Baptist since John baptised everybody who wanted to turn back to God and followers of Jesus. And secondly, the fact that Jesus refers to this baptism experience in verse 8 simply as when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, a reference to what we will see next week in chapter 2 of the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost on everybody who was there. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Father's gift to every person who gives their life to Jesus and decides to follow him. But we're also told here that it's a baptism of power. 
Again, in verse 8, Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So the Spirit is given to empower us, each one of us, each follower of Jesus, to do what he wants us to do. Without him, friends, we simply can't accomplish anything for Jesus. This baptism of the Spirit is a clear indication that the establishment of the church is indeed the continued work of Jesus as he reigns from heaven then and now. Neither the apostles nor us can do a solitary thing without Jesus' enablement through the Spirit. And that leads us to the second element and the main one, to the plan to build the church. It begins with the fulfilment of a promise but then it continues with a commission. In verse 6, Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, you can imagine after Jesus' resurrection, it was natural enough for the apostles to inquire about the fulfilment of the kingdom of God. After all, that was the essence of Jesus' teaching, that he came uh, to announce the kingdom of God. So the apostles naturally assumed at this stage that this would issue in some sort of political establishment of Israel once more. But the kingdom was to take on a very different makeup than what they at this stage knew. And they didn't need to know the details at this stage, they just needed to know the task, the commission, what Jesus wanted them to do. So he gave them a commission which was going to be the critical, very critical to the plan to build his church. It was the apostolic witness to Jesus. I want you to notice the power for which the Spirit was given here. It was the power to witness. The power to witness to Jesus. We will see many times in Acts that when Jesus' followers are filled or empowered with the Spirit, what we're told is that they speak the Word of God. We might be tempted to think, of course, of power only in terms of the miraculous, And of course, that certainly accompanied the ministry of the apostles. But the primary purpose of the power of the Spirit is witness. It was that way back then, brothers and sisters, and it still is today. Well, what were the apostles to be witnesses of Jesus to? It's not exactly specified here, but it'll become clear throughout Acts. Two things primarily, and both are present and implied in this first chapter of Acts. The apostles are to be witnesses, (coughs) first and foremost, to his resurrection. One of the interesting things about the Acts of the Apostles is if you read through Acts, you won't find a whole lot of emphasis on Jesus' death. 
It's what you might expect, but it doesn't happen. Rather, the emphasis is on the resurrection. And with good reason. You see, without the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross becomes just another tragic death of a wonderfully good man. One of the many, we might say, throughout human history. But it's through the resurrection that we find out that Jesus' death on the cross was no ordinary death, but the substitutionary death of the Son of God for the sins of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts the substitutionary death of Jesus like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It sounds good, doesn't it? But how do we know it's actually true? And not just a bit of religious fantasy or wishful thinking, which of course I think probably many of your neighbours and workmates, colleagues, etc. probably think it is. How do we know? Well, it is, friends, because of the resurrection. In Romans, first four chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul engages in a detailed explanation of the necessity and purpose of God sending his son into the world to die for human sin. At the end of those four chapters, he ends with this simple statement. He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The resurrection, you see, tells us that Jesus' death accomplished our justification before God. It tells us that it was no ordinary death but a substitutionary death, one of which we are and every follower of Jesus is a beneficiary. And although we as God's people are witnesses to this truth also, the apostles are the prime witnesses. Why is that? It's because they are the eyewitnesses, friends. They are the eyewitnesses. That's why Luke includes verse 3 here in chapter 1. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And it's why later in this chapter, when we'll get there, when discussing a replacement for Judas to the apostolic circle in verses 21 and 22, Peter says, therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who had been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Without the primary witness, the eyewitness account of Jesus' resurrection, then the story becomes no more than hearsay. Wishful thinking. And really quite fanciful, really. Since when was the last time you saw anybody resurrected? That is why, friends, it's, it's so useful 
when you are able to, say, read the Bible with someone, a neighbour, a colleague, a friend, who's thinking about the Christian faith. Because they do not just hear your witness, they read the eyewitness account. I love the opening words of the Apostle John in his first letter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, and our eyes, with our eyes, which we have looked at our hands and touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus is building his church through the apostles' witness, first and foremost to the resurrection of Jesus. But there is a second aspect to the apostolic witness that is every bit as important at the first. That is their witness to the reality of his return. I'm sure that is why Luke included in this first chapter this particular account of Jesus' ascension in verses 9 to 11, you know, the up, up, up. In verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here looking in the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him. Go into heaven. Now, of course, earlier we saw that Jesus had come and gone for 40 days uh, before them. So since Jesus had disappeared and appeared to them a number of times, it may have been that the disciples or the apostles kept looking at the sky because they thought this was going to happen again. Here's another instance of Jesus going away, but he's going to come back expecting him to reappear. But this time it was different. Two men dressed in white, no doubt angels, attest to the fact that this time Jesus was gone into heaven. But one day we'll return to heaven, from heaven in the same way. Now, I don't think for a second that we should imagine that it's exactly the same way in terms of clouds and stuff like that. But rather, I think, what is being attested here is the truth that Jesus will return in a visible way. No one will miss him. There will be no mistake. But what the rest of Acts reveals, it's not quite clear at this stage, is that Jesus will return in judgment. He will certainly take his church those who've responded to him as saviour and lord of the world, with him for eternity. But for everyone else, he will execute a devastating judgment. We see this spelt out in the rest of Acts, the clearest example being in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is preaching to Gentiles in Athens about an unknown God, the God they don't know, At the end of the speech, he states in verse 31 that God has set a day when he will judge the world by the man he has appointed. 
and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, if the resurrection alerts believers to their justification, then it also in turn attests to the reality of Jesus' return to judge the world. I always remember a story of one of my uh, lecturers when I was in training for the ministry um, many years ago now, of course, at Moore College in Sydney. He told us how he was preaching one day to a large crowd and when he'd finished, he was, he was preaching an evangelistic sermon and when he had finished, a young man came up to him and said, I'm happy. He's a bit facetious, this guy, so he said, oh, I'm, I'm John. And the young man said, I'm happy, I don't need Jesus. To which my lecturer replied, what has that got to do with anything? What has that got to do with anything? You see, every believer knows the wonderful benefits of coming to know Jesus, to be forgiven of everything you've ever done or will do wrong, to be acceptable to God just the way you are, to know the meaning of life and the assurance of life in a new heavens and new earth for, with God for eternity, to belong to a community of his people whose main aim is to love and support one another. But whether you recognise these benefits or not, the most important thing of all is to recognise the reality of Jesus' return and flee the judgement to come. Indeed, if you read through Peter's first speech in chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit comes, we are told that he pleaded with everyone there to save themselves from this corrupt generation. If you're here today and you're still thinking about Jesus, don't be like that young man. In my story... who was weighing up what he thought Jesus could offer him. And that's so common today. What people think about, what do I get out of it? What can Jesus do for me? The apostolic eyewitness to the resurrection attests not only to the salvation Jesus offers all people, but to the terrible judgment of God that awaits all who continue to rebel and fail to acknowledge Jesus as Lord of the universe. Human fate, a human fate of judgment, is determined for most of us at death or, if we're still around, at the point of Jesus' return. As Hebrews 9.27 states, people are destined to die once and after that face the judgment. Sorry, no reincarnation. No second chance. Die once. Face judgment. This is the commission that Jesus gives to his apostles. And it's a global witness. It's a witness, Jesus says, to the ends of the earth. As verse 8 states, a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
And brothers and sisters, that's where we come in, isn't it? Clearly, the apostles form the foundation of the commission to Jesus, but they don't take it to the ends of the earth. We do. At the end of Acts, the gospel has indeed been proclaimed by the apostles in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and has come, if you like, to the centre of the Roman Empire in Rome. But Rome is not the ends of the earth. So Jesus commissioned the apostles, passes to believers of every generation in a secondary sense because our witness to Jesus is a witness to the primary eyewitnesses which of course now have come down to us in the biblical record written for us. So Jesus builds his church through the gift of the promised Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit empowers the apostles for their commission to witness to Jesus as he does for each and every believer today. But at this foundational stage of Jesus building his church, there's one more thing that needs to be done. I've called it a completion. From verse 12 of chapter 1, the story changes focus dramatically. It changes from the focus on the witness to Jesus to a replacement for Judas. In other words, there seems to be a necessity for what I've called the completion of the integrity of the apostolic circle. And this takes up the rest of the chapter, 15 verses. And I can tell you that when you get 15 verses devoted to something, that means it's important. Otherwise the time wouldn't be spent. Luke thought it was important. Why spend so much time relating the replacement of Judas with Matthias? You see, it's not that there always needs to be 12 apostles because James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, is killed by Herod in chapter 12. And there's no question of him being replaced. Rather, it seems to be the real problem was the betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. The integrity, you see, of the apostolic circle has been broken. In Jesus' teaching, the 12 apostles represent the the 12 tribes of Israel in its restored form. For example, in Luke 22, uh, stage of the Last Supper, um, we find... Jesus states these words. You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer in you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. But in the end, friends, one did not stand for him. Did he? That loyalty had been broken. So before the Spirit was poured out and the witness to Jesus began, the integrity of that foundation that would form the building of his church would need to be restored. Hence in verse 20, Peter quotes from Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, 
which when you read them ordinary, ordinarily, you wouldn't necessarily think apply to Judas. But he takes certain parts of that and sees them as applying to Judas to reveal the necessity for his replacement as God's enemy. Once that is achieved, through the appointment of Matthias, all is now ready for the Spirit to be given in chapter 2, empowering the witness of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Something that continues in us believers here today. So the Acts of the Apostles then is really the continuation of both the work and teaching of Jesus through the giving of the Holy Spirit, empowering the witness to Jesus, the witness to his resurrection, the witness to the reality still to come of his return in judgment. We are part of that great work of Jesus building his church. We are part of that great witness to his resurrection and to the reality of his return. We witness to the primary witness, the eyewitnesses, the 12 apostles now, of course, written down for us in the scriptures. Friends, let's pray. Let's pray that through the power of the Spirit, the Spirit may use us here also at Golden Grove to continue to witness to Jesus and participate in this great work of building his church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've read today and we thank you that although we might think that um, Jesus' work somehow ceased at his resurrection, in fact it just continues as Lord of the universe in a different form. We thank you for the great gift of your Holy Spirit which empowers each one of us for daily life and witness in following Jesus. And we do ask that you would give us courage and help us as we have opportunity to continue to attest to the greatest events of human history the resurrection of Jesus and the reality of his return in judgment. And we ask it in his wonderful name. Amen.